the uh, beginning scriptures, Revelation 1, 1 to 4. Basically, the opening passage that gives you an idea about the whole book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Uh, when you get to the book of Revelation, you are ending into the climax of where we began God's big picture, and that is from the garden. In essence, what we're doing is going from the garden to the garden. And here we enter into the holy ground, holy, yeah, the holy ground of looking behind the veil of life to see how God looks at his world and how God is at work in his world. So one of the things that the book of Revelation does, it gives an overview of the word and it gives an overview of the world. It also um, gives an overview to some of the practices that the church is called to accomplish as it serves its God. You may remember, the for well, let me check. What is the formula we've been using about the big picture? Okay, well, not quite in that. God's place, you got the three parts. With God's people under God's rule and blessing. And we've seen the process by which this took place. You, you had him. You just got to get him in the, the... The way the author put it, okay? Yeah, either one. God's people in God's place with God under God's rule. That doesn't matter. Remember, where do we start in this course? Okay, we started with God. That led... Excuse me? No, it led to creation. I mean, you have to have one, the place, which led to God's kingdom, which is part of it, but to the garden, God's people, Adam and Eve, and where did that lead? That's the um, the first part of the kingdom. Okay. And where did it leave with Adam and Eve? The fall. The fall. Think waterfall. Okay. 
led to the fall in which human beings were kicked out of God's place, the garden, the creation, and a creation that is described as a garden. And then what happened after the fall? They're banished from the garden. They're kicked out. And that led to sin entering into the world. And that entered into... He didn't follow... He didn't quite do it this way. But the next story really is Noah and the ark. Which again... It's God's place with God's people under God's blessing. Uh yeah, animals are affected by the sin of Adam. Therefore the lion will eat the lamb. You have carnivorous animals that you would not have had before because carnivorous animals create death. I think part of the miracle of the ark is the lions and the lambs dwelt in the same place for almost a year without eating each other. I mean, there's a, there's a divine providence. But, yeah, they were... You've had pets, right? Yeah. Do pets always obey what you say? No. no. Sit down, Tally. No, I'm not going to sit down. I don't want to. <laughs> so, you you have you know you're going to have that sinfulness, but that's the beauty of the ark is that for a whole year everybody got together. Now, that doesn't mean Mrs. Noah did not argue with Mr. Noah. No, it's your turn to sweep out the ark, you know. But it was, that was God's place. It was his safety place. Saved him. What happened after Noah? Excuse me? Abraham! Yeah, well, the Tower of Babel was a curse because it wasn't God's people getting together for God's blessing. They were trying to usurp God and his presence. But here in Abraham, you have him being taken from the Ur of the Chaldeans, way down here south, up and around the Euphrates and into what would become the Promised Land. And the Promised Land was there. So you have God's place where Abraham lived in that little crescent of the Mediterranean with God's people who is Abraham, Sarah, and his children under God's rule and blessing. And then after that, what happened? Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, And that leads to the, excuse me? That, no, that leads to uh, 
eventually, you, but there's one more step. Twelve tribes. The twelve boys. Okay. And even with the twelve boys, they are, they live in God's place. They are God's people under the rule. And yet those twelve boys were scoundrels. They were really. Oh yeah, listen, read the, read the story and you'll find these guys are scoundrels. Oh, they, they're sinners, just like you and I. And that led to Egypt. And again, Egypt is God's place where God's people are under his rule and they multiply. They go in and with 70 and they come out as 600,000 men, but if you put women and children, you're talking 3 million people. Of course, it took 400 years. You've got to remember that's the thing. And then from Egypt, you have Moses and Israel. And where did they go? Okay, wilderness, which, which was, remember God's place? Wilderness is where God met them. Lived, with, lived in the tabernacle that followed and followed them around. They're God's people under God's rule. But eventually they end up in the promised land. And under Joshua, they divide it up, they conquer, and they begin occupying it. That moved them into kingship, where finally under David, the whole place is occupied by the whole people. And under David and Solomon, there is a tremendous amount of blessing. Under Solomon... Um, and we're forgetting Saul because he didn't turn out real great. He started. Under David and Solomon, they became one of the supreme world powers of that time. Ruled from Egypt all the way up to Babylon. And you know, people came to just to see Solomon's wealth and all that went there, okay? Then from there, you have the decline, the exile, where God's people are no longer God's place and they're not under his blessing. And finally, you have the return. Okay, that's the Old Testament kingdom of God. It took a long time, <laughs> but it was a long time. It's uh, 14, 1,500 years they were doing that. Does anybody need more time to write it down? Too bad. <laughs> okay, because I, I need more space. I got to get me a bigger board. I, I want one of those boards they had in right state where you could slip them around and it just, oh, well. So, you have the return, 
and for 400 years they are languishing and all of a sudden you have the person of John the baptizer not the Baptist the baptizer and with him Jesus and now you really have God's place the Holy Land with God's people and God being in the midst of his people and the rule and blessing uh, the rule was that Jesus was setting up a better kingdom than they had known under David and Solomon similar in construction but deeper and better and the blessing was that wherever Jesus went miracles broke out people were raised from the dead they were healed in fact those who do this kind of archaeological work say that at about that time in the history of the crescent of Israel there the the uh, rate of illness had fallen drastically it doesn't say Jesus healed everybody because we know he couldn't even do healings in his own hometown of Nazareth they wouldn't believe but he spent his time going into towns healing preaching and the country was getting better okay. and from there of course you have the cross and the resurrection And then that led to what? Pentecost. And what happened at Pentecost? Fire poured down, yeah. Tongues of fire. Dancing over their heads. Coming down upon, yeah, upon that. And, and Moses would come down from the mountain and his face would glow. Or he'd go into the tabernacle and his face would glow to the place. They said, hide your face from us, Moses. We can't take it. And that's what Pentecost developed God's place. Now it's no longer a building, which would have been the temple. It was the people. God's place is with God's people, and he brings his rule and blessing. So you have a story like in Acts, where two disciples decide to fudge on their tithe. Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property. They give some of the proceeds. They claim a tax deduction for the full amount of the property, even though they kept some of it. Uh, trying to put it into modern terms. Peter Polk calls them out. Ananias dies, taken out. When the people come back from burying him, Sapphira comes in, says the same thing. She dies and wonder came upon the people. Why? Because God was ruling. He said, you don't lie. That's how serious it is. That, in some places, 
would just decimate a church. I mean, if people, when they lied about how much they gave to the church on their tax form and they just died, you'd have a hard time building that church. <laughs> They'd learn. And the blessing was the church just grew. It went, it went from the city of Jerusalem, 120 individuals who are uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit to where it goes throughout the Mediterranean area. And actually, if we understand where, who the apostles were and where they went, it went up into England, Scotland, St. Andrew is the patron saint, patron saint uh, we say the Apostle Andrew, of Scotland. So you have Matthew who probably went all the way over to India and may even have made it into Japan. Uh, I'm sorry, Thomas. Yeah, I'm sorry. My, my mind just hit a road bump. <laughs> and it happens. It happens, yeah. It happens more than I like. <laughs> and then you have the apostles who go over to North Africa. You have Philip who evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch south of Egypt. And he goes home and he's evangelizing people there. Uh, Acts 8, where it says, when Stephen was stoned, they persecuted the Christians and they all left town except the apostles. And so wherever the message had gone after that persecution, it was because ordinary Christians, disciples, took that message, not the apostles. They stayed, they stayed there. You have Paul who runs all around the uh, north, well, the... Uh, Asia Minor, into Greece, into Rome, proclaiming the gospel. Probably made it to Spain and back. He wanted to see the bullfights. No. <laughs> he, he, he proclaimed the gospel, finally killed by Nero there. But that's God's place, his people, by the Holy Spirit. They're his people who are under his rule and blessing. And it was at the end of Paul's ministry, he could say the gospel went into all the world, at least the world they knew, within 30 years. And it has continued to be that way ever since. From 120 people in Jerusalem, in an upper room in Jerusalem, it has now gone into many, if not all, of the nations or the people groups of the world. There are still some that have not heard the gospel, but many have. And it's having its effect. What you will not hear on the news that you ought to know is, you know, in, in Iraq, Christianity is blossoming. Not only blossoming, it's just ballooning. It's growing. And it's one of the reasons why the Christian church is being persecuted because they're watching Muslim after Muslim come to Christ and stand up for the Christian faith, even though it may mean they're beheading. It's just going forth. It's amazing. Uh, in Africa, Asia, everywhere except what we commonly call the first, uh, first level, Europe, 
North America. Um, here it's dying to some degree. We have a lot of Christians, but they're prosperity Christians. They are, have, have a gospel that is not centered upon Christ, but how, what he can do for you, how, how he can make you better and have more good stuff so that you can be more covetous, which we heard about this morning. But the church is going, the kingdom is going. And in essence, getting us back to our lesson, which this has been part of it, but getting back to Revelation. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. It is God showing us a behind-the-scene look at what goes on when the church is the church. And in doing that, showing that he will conquer every enemy of his people. It may take years, centuries, but he will conquer. And he is building his kingdom. Uh, his kingdom is reaching more than we ever thought. And again, we don't always think about it that way because we only see our own own area. But it is, it's absolutely growing. So, th and this revelation is the story of the kingdom perfected. From that start to when you get to chapter 20 to 22, the kingdom comes into its full blossom. Every enemy is destroyed. Thrown into a lake of fire. And in thrown into that lake of fire, then the people of God come back to a city, which is a garden, where all of God's people live under his rule and especially his blessing. For instance, you have Revelation 7 where you have the first part is the 144,000 uh, let me just remind you, numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They're never, uh, they're never meant to be taken literally. So, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm sorry, we don't only have 144,000 saved people. Of course, they've, they've reneged on that too. When they got to 144,001, they had to change their prophecy. <laughs> they had to say, well, that was just symbolic. But you have to be Jehovah's Witnesses to be anywhere numbered at that. And the next image that is given of those who have died who are in heaven, where they are in perfect peace, bliss. And it says at the end that God wipes every tear out of their eyes. And the idea of wiping it out is before it even has an opportunity to form, he takes it away. There's no crying in heaven. It's just like baseball. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> so there's no crying in heaven. It's a place of perfect... Re so you got that one. <laughs> so you all have to go out and see that movie. <laughs> yeah, League of Their Own. And so you have, at the end of the book, this perfect kingdom that will never, ever be destroyed.
That's the beauty. And that's what the book is all about. Now the question is, we'll, we'll have to deal with this when we meet again, is how do you understand some of the things that are in this book? Um, I listed some things you have to keep in mind. We'll go through some of them. One, the book is apocalyptic literature, which means it's revelation. It's an unveiling. That's what the word apocalyptic means. But what it unveils is symbolism, drama. It does it in a, quote, poetic way. Uh, when you were in 11th, 12th grade English and they taught you how to read poetry, and they said, well, you read it, but you're not looking necessarily for the words, but for the image that it gives you. Frost, a, a road less taken. Okay, you're not, he's not sitting there in a, in a forest looking at two roads. He's thinking about the way in which you can live life. And there's a way, a road not taken. And, you know, you take one road, there's one that you could have taken, but it would not have been as, as good. Or your life would have been different. I sometimes think, what would my life been if I hadn't married Peg? If I'd been a bachelor like my mentor, or if I'd married somebody else, and I say, that's superfluous. That was a road not taken. Let's not even go down that road, okay? Let's keep on what, what's real. Um, apocalyptic literature, like Numbers 23 to 24, and Daniel 7 and to 12, and Zechariah, is associated with extremes. It's really an overstatement. Um, the whole world came out to see the Cincinnati Reds play the Pirates. Literally does not mean that all the people came out to see them play. Yeah, you really need a large stadium. Or the whole world came out to see the FIFA. Now, it just means a lot of people came. So when Revelation talks about 144,000, it's a huge number, but it can even be bigger than that. Um, it's a picture book. It's a book that's meant to, uh, to develop imagery and your imagination. So you immense yourself in the picture. The throne room of God in Revelation 4. You know, it's just absolutely gorgeous place and with filled with emeralds and filled with jewels and light and color and you have this throne above all else and you have this magnificent being up there well first of all you know god has no body so you can't see god he's a spirit but the image is something that's overwhelming or when John looks and sees Jesus, the Lamb, and he's, he looks for the one who conquers. It's a lamb who is a slave, as if slain, and that's the Lion of Judah. See, when he looked at Jesus, in reality, he didn't see a lamb, but he saw the lamb who was slain. And automatically, you're brought back to the cross. And then he's the Lion of Judah, which means 
an Old Testament term for the Messiah. That kind of imagery. Uh, there's so, there's and, and, and what John did when he was writing this book, and I, I, th I think, and I wouldn't die for this, but I think the way he did, God showed him the images, and he wrote them down, and he expanded on them. Again, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word of God. But he did it in such a way that captures your imagination, that's a thoughtful composition that is, uh, affects how you read it. And in some ways, it's really simple to read. And in other ways, it's so complex, you can spend your life working on this book and never really get to the depth. Well, there are places he's in the story. Angel comes to him and he bows down before it. He sees Jesus, bows down before him. Um, I, don't th I don't think in a lot of the like trumpets and bowls he inserted himself. But he saw what was taking place and shaped it in a certain way. Remember, this is another part of the interpretation um, this book is heavy in Old Testament symbols and Old Testament ways. The plagues uh, carry a major part of what happens with the trumpets and the bowls and things like that, seals. And, and I think out of his Hebrew background and his training as a, a child, he would he'd take what he saw and he would shape it into the format of those plagues and that. And again, plagues aren't, the plagues are there, but they're not meant to be taken literally, i.e., it says that a seal was opened and one-third of the population of the earth died. Well, that's, you, you know, if, if you look at certain uh, books and movies and um, way people talk about it, they say, well, a third of the population is going to die now. It just means that seal had a great effect upon the, the population. I don't think if you knew the exact interpretation or exact number of people on the earth and the plague came that there would be exactly one-third who had died. It's just a good amount. See, that's the kind of Im imagery that you have going on in this book. Uh, and... Again, part of the interpretation is you take it literally. That means in the kind of writing in which it is. Again, we don't take poetry literally. We take narrative literally. We don't look at the Psalms and say, well, that has to be literally true because it's not meant to do that. Um, it's not that we aren't, or that we're playing fast and loose with a book. It's just that's the kind of literature it is. So you have to, it, it's, again, it's meant for the imagination. What's it like to have a whole sky full of locusts come in and devour? 
and you see the destruction. Take it one step for, further in Revelation 20. What's it like to live in a lake of fire? Now, I've swum in lakes, but they're nice, cool water. What it would be like to live in a lake of fire? You see, that is the outcome for those who are enemies of God. And to live there eternally. It doesn't mean that hell is a lake of fire. What it means, it's like a lake of fire. And it's, it, it's even, you know, symbols are even worse than the way they're presented. A lake of fire just scares the gajivers out of me. I don't know, maybe, maybe you like fire. Maybe you like living in fire, I don't know. But it scares me to think of what it would be like to live in a lake of fire. And hell is far worse than that. Being in the very presence of God without his grace at all, in even the most minuscule way, that's what it's like. It's like a lake of fire. So, I mean, that's what you have to be thinking of as you go through. Um, the, the, one of the other parts of the rules of interpretation, and this, is what, this one's up for grabs, is that the chapters are not meant to be chronological. If you look at ways interpreting, some say, yes, from chapter uh, 6, if not chapter 4, it's one set of seven after another. I don't think that's the way the book was meant. I think the book is concentric circles. You have a general impression, and then you go a little bit deeper, and then you go a little bit deeper, and then finally you hit the bullseye. So that it goes from general down to specific. And they get worse and worse or they more imagery minded as they go. So there is a whole line of interpretation that believes yes with Genesis or with uh, Revelation 6 you have these different periods that take place. Uh, I think part of what explains that is number three there. It's primary, a primarily a letter to a church or to churches. Think about how it starts. There's not only the introduction, but there's introduction to the triune God. Then there's the introduction to Christ where he sees, where John sees a vision of, the son of, of a son of man. And finally, the part of that vision is he is standing in the midst of a lampstand uh, and seven stars of the angels, which could just simply mean messengers, are in his hand. And then two and three talk about seven different churches. Some would say, well, that's seven different ages of the church, from the Ephesian age to the Laodicean age. And we say, you look at the coldness and war the a lack of fervency in the church day, and obviously we're in the Laodicean age. Well, that's true in America, but it's not true in other countries. What that whole section is doing, it's telling those churches, I'm in your presence. I know what you're going through. I know what, how, what good things are taking place and what bad things, except for 
Two of them are taking place. Here's what I'm telling you to do. And if you do it and overcome, you will find a blessing. And that's basically the outline of each one of those letters. So, and the rest of it builds upon that. Because you see the same images in chapters 1 to 3 that are in chapters 4 through 19. They come back out. So I think what John is doing is saying, well, this is for the church. It's like any book of the New Testament or the Old Testament. It was primarily written for its first audience. But it's also applicable to the church afterwards. We do this with Paul's letters. We discover what Ephesus was like and why Paul was writing to Ephesus and what he was saying to them in light of who they were and what was taking place. And then we say, okay, how does this apply to us? Well, Jesus is writing this book, Revelation, to those seven churches and saying, in essence, the veil, I'm going to take the veil uh, open up the veil it's an unveiling an apocalypse of what's going on behind the scenes and when you see that you'll see what you're really facing and that'll give you an understanding of how then to live and what to do and what I'm calling you to do and at the end he opens up the whole veil so they see the final chapter which is his coming and the, um, the beauty of the new garden, the new city, the re- new heavens and new earth. So I, you know, I think this is lost in a lot of what we see in American evangelicalism is it was primarily meant for that first century. And we'll go over that later on next time to see it. Um, The book describes the last days. And remember, the last days are not days that are real close to his coming. Paul says we're living, uh, Peter says we're living in the last days at Pentecost. And it goes all the way to his return. Now, there's been a lot of last days between Pentecost and even now. And and we could be another two, three, four thousand years down the road. But they're all the last days. And some say, no, tomorrow. (laughs) Now, because I have something I have to do tomorrow, I don't want to do. So now, you know, it's like, Lord, I got a test. Can't you come today? <laughs> Please. Um, we, you know, we understand the last day says you had an old age. That's before Christ. And you have a new age after Christ. B.C., A.D. A.D. is now the new age. Small capital, small N, small A not new age in spirituality like. These are the last days. We live in the last days. Uh, I think one of the things you do is you read Revelation in light of the Olivet Discourse of Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what you see in in there, the disciples ask him two questions. He said, this, is, this temple's going to be torn down, they say. When and what? What's the sign and when it's going to take place? And he talks about the what question. 
And then he talks about the when. And in that discourse, he says, in this generation, it will occur. I know people try to say, well, the word could mean race. And therefore, as long as they're Jews, it's possible. Uh, no, the word means generation, 40 years. That's, that's the only way you can describe it. So what, what's he saying? Within the 40 years between now and 40 years down the road, the destruction of the temple is going to take place. Last week, if you looked at dates in history, we celebrated Rome sacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple back in 70 A.D., and that's why in the early church, if you read the early church fathers, 70 A.D. was such a, a prime date in the history of the church. All Judaism was basically done away with. No sacrifices, no temple, no prayers. And it's as if was God was saying, the old is gone, behold, the new has come. Almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Old is gone, the new has come. The church is now my people. And that all the shadow of the Old Testament has been overcome by the solidness of the new. Um, book is also one of worship. Uh, you see a lot of worshiping taking place, filled with doxologies. It's, it is to be aligned with the other books of the Bible. I've seen people who have, who have in, in essence, tried to interpret it as if it were a separate book from the other 66. Now, you can't do that. We have one Bible that has 66 parts. And you have to look at Revelation as a culmination of the 65 that has come. But it's, it has to be interpreted by Scripture, which is a primary rule of interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. So, if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to know the Old Testament. You have to know all the symbolism and events because they pop up almost, sometimes almost not seen, almost, almost overheard, but they're there. Uh, and that brings us to the last one where you have the book is filled with Old Testament references, symbols, events. Uh, the plagues are important in Revelation. And why are the plagues important in Revelation? What were the plagues meant to show in the Exodus? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm just asking I was pointing to Valdi. Power of God. Power of God over the idols of Egypt. And they basically, was, God was showing to the Israelites, don't worry about it. I got this. I handle this, you see. Their gods are impotent wherever I am. And you, uh, you see the same thing happening in the references where the plagues are shown in the seals and the trumpets and the, the, the bowls, he's basically saying, I got this. You know, they're impotent before me. Or if you see it 
like in the 13th chapter where you have Satan and his two henchmen. That's what I call them. Two, two uh, that come out of the land of the sea. What I think are the government and religion. And he basically destroys them by chapter 19 to 20. He's basically like the plagues. He's saying, I got it. Don't worry. The government is harassing you. Don't worry. They're underneath my authority. If religions are trying to turn you away from me, don't worry about it. I've got them. And that's exactly what those seven churches need to hear. It's what the church always needs to hear. And the last part of this, you'll find near the end of your paper. And that is the seven blessings to its readers. You know, kind of snuck in to part of the story, seven blessings. First one is in chapter 1-4. To those who read and hear this book. Again, that sets this book in a congregational setting. It was meant to be read and heard within a congregation. There's a blessing to those who read and hear. We have a way of individualizing that in our American society. Well, if you read this book and hear it, it'll be a blessing. Well, it will be. But it's even more to hear for the people of God themselves to hear it. First, chapter four, 13 says, Those who die in the Lord, uh, the Lord watches over them. Kind of like First Thessalonians 4. They're concerned about those who have died. And he says, don't worry about it. When Christ comes back, they'll be raised. We'll be raised with them. 60, chapter 16, to those who stay awake and alert to his coming. That, that's a call that Mark 13 has over and over again. Stay awake. Watch. Again, there's uh, a blessing to that. To those who are invited to a wedding feast. It's like the parable that Jesus gave about being invited to a, par to a wedding feast and coming, uh, coming appropriately clothed. To those who share in the first resurrection, and some people will put that as a resurrection near Christ's return. Um, I personally think that resurrection is when we come to faith in Christ. How did Paul describe us in Ephesians 2? We are dead in trespasses and sin. We have been made alive. That's a resurrection. So when you get to the 20th chapter and it talks about the second resurrection, that's not a second time that Christ comes. That resurrection is from the physical death where our bodies and our spirits are joined together. And then 22 has two of them, those who keep the words of this prophecy. Uh, gee, this sounds exactly like Joshua 1. Read this word, obey it, keep it. It sounds like Deuteronomy where he says, blessed are you if you obey, cursed are you if you disobey. Um, it's what the king had to do every year is to write out and read the law of the covenant because that was what was supposed to direct him. And finally, to those who have cleansed their clothes. Uh, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talks about changing your clothing. Put off the old, be renewed in your mind, put on the new. Or Zechariah when the priest is clothed with filthy rags and Lord says, change his clothing. 
See, that those kind of images come through. And that's part of the blessing that comes with it. So, you have the, the bookends. You have Genesis, which starts with a garden, all the way to Revelation that ends with a city in a garden. And the city's beautiful, but the emphasis is the garden. And in that garden is the tree of life that they were, Adam and Eve were told they could eat, but if they had eaten it after eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there'd be no hope. Now we get to eat of the tree of life and there is eternal hope. Okay. So that's the overview without going into a lot more detail, which I have in your outline there. What's your appetite? Make you want to come back in September. Puzzle you until you go, what? I've never heard this before. Because I will tell you, my, my understanding is not the common understanding. If you ever read or seen the movie Left Behind, that whole series, this is my suggestion to you. Burn the books and the video. <laughs> it's just bad theology. <laughs> you know, in fact, in September, after the class, we'll go out in the backyard and have a book burning. <laughs> it sold millions of copies and it made a whole lot of money for a few people. But it's just horrendous theology, horrendous biblical interpretation. Get rid of those books. They're kind of like really bad books. Well, it's, first of all, it sets up a false premise, I think, about the coming of Christ. That he comes two or three different times before he's done. And second of all, yeah, it, it does put a lot more emphasis upon the, Satan and his henchmen than the book of Revelation does. The I mean, book of Revelation is, you know, God just dusting the earth with these, with these enemies, which is what we need to hear. So, when right states begins to say, no, you can't have that kind of ministry, you say, don't worry. God has this. <laughs> I don't know if they're doing that yet or not, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's common on college campuses that you can give any point of view beside the Christian. And you're not even allowed on campus. And, you know, we get all upset about it. Says, Hold it. God's got this one. He can destroy that uni the university or he can transform it. Don't worry about it. We get hyper about all this stuff. Okay. Well, I did take you over 45 minutes. I apologize. But I'm not sorry. <laughs> Any questions while well, we got?
What now? Uh, excuse me, what now? When I grow up, my voice will change. <laughs> um, we, we will have a second class. This will be 13B come September. Okay? Because there's some more stuff I want to get into. You all have had the introduction. In fact, I could do about 27 classes on this stuff, but that's... <laughs> yeah, you may like it. I don't win very many friends when I do 17 classes on Revelation. So, and I, and I, I say that partly because what I have to say and what solid expeditors have to say about the book of Revelation is not the familiar uh, thinking of that book. And so people say, no, no, it couldn't be that way. Say, yes, yes, it is. Think about it. You know, th think about it. Could Jesus really have died for all people and then God would, would condemn people? Can't do that. If he died for all people, they're no longer condemned. Sins are forgiven. Sins are covered. Yes, Tony. There's this, this theme that runs from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation 22 about the city. The city is a place where people congregate and share gifts and talents and abilities. Uh, it was seen in early families, Noah's, Abraham's, uh, Abraham's extended family. The problem with Babel was not that it was a city, but it rebelled against and worked in a wrong way. The whole concept of the city of Jerusalem and the place where the temple, it builds upon that. And, and when, you, when you see that, that Paul went from city to city. He didn't go out in the country. He said, in the city you begin a church because you can affect the countryside from that city. And in our day and age, you start churches in cities and then deal with the suburbs or deal with the out, outlying because you can affect more people and they in turn can affect a whole lot more people than any small number could. So there's that constant theme. So when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, yeah, you see a city because that's what God was actually intending. I have an idea that if Adam and Eve had not fallen, that garden would have become the centerpiece of a city. Perfect, you know, uh, non-sinful people would have gathered, the family would have grown from those two, and they would have built a city. Oh, it's like... You want, when you have a family, you want the family to be around you. It's one of the things we're dealing with. We only have one child and his family who are close to us. The rest are scattered. Boy, if I could figure out some way to get them back to Dayton, I would. But I can't tell my kids, you do this or you lose your inheritance. Buck 50, they say, yeah. 
No, this, it would be a buck fifty. That's the inheritance. I didn't work hard. Um, <laughs> but you want your family around you. And there would have been this huge city that came around that garden. And that, and what as it appears in Revelation 21 and 22 would have been here if it hadn't have been for the fall. That's my extrapolation of what's taken place. Yeah, well, it could have been like uh, New York City where you have that huge area, a garden area in the midst of that metropolitan area. I'm forgetting the name of that place. Central Park, thank you. Thank you, Liz. Central Park. And you, you take a look at it from the height and you see this huge, beautiful park in the midst of all those buildings. I think that's kind of what Eden would have been like. And every Sunday, because it never rained, we'd all gather in the park to celebrate. Saturday in the park. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's he was tending the garden. And when he's pushed out after his baptism, he goes where? Wilderness. The exact opposite of the garden to be tempted by Satan and yet to stand firm. Totally different than Adam and Eve had in the garden and he stands firm. That, that kind of image as well. First Peter talks about that. Passing through the Red Sea was their baptism. Although they never got wet. Huh. Maybe they've come across a new way of baptizing. <laughs> Excuse me? In the Spirit. Yeah. But they went through the water, which is what baptism is meant to symbolize. Going through the same thing when they went into Israel from the wilderness. They went through the Jordan River, water on either side. Had to be fascinating. I hope they got a video of it. I can go to the library and watch it. <laughs> uh, anything else? There is no timeline. It's, it's like a concentric circles, and that's three is not supposed to be 
the totality. That's all I could draw. After three, I get lost. Very simple. Actually, there are four. But I said, first you start off in a general format, then you get a little bit more specific and focus in, and finally you get another one and another one until you hit the very core. Maybe it's like using a microscope. When you put the slide under, or maybe a telescope might be a better one, you look out and you see uh, a huge area and slowly you begin to move in and look at one or two stars. Do that with my camera, with the lens, you know. And then I miss a picture because I'm playing with that lens and the bird flew away. And Okay, anything else? We will let you know when we get to the good stuff. Millennial views and historic views of interpreting Revelation. And that's when people begin throwing things. You heretic! <laughs> you imbecile! Well, that's why you stand up when you teach. You got to keep going. Yeah, And we're going to do it in September when my knee feels better so I can move faster. <laughs> Sometime after September 1st. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to look at the calendar and, and check with Jason. It will not be the first Sunday in September because that is Labor Day weekend and nobody works on Labor Day weekend, not even me. <laughs> no. And uh, we'll have to see when the picnic is, when the presentation, okay? Fair enough? Thank you for your uh, putting up, for your toleration. We, ch we check tomatoes on the door before you come in. It's like the Old West. You have to put your gun at the door. <laughs> Excuse me? Well, usually they're rotten. They, they splat better. <laughs> Yep. Okay, let's close with prayer. Uh, before we get too silly. Nah, you can't get too silly. Father, thank you for a book that is a culmination of all the other books of your, of your word. Thank you for its simplicity and yet its complexity. And the great message it has for us as it unveils to us your work through your Son, by your Spirit, into a world that needs your salvation. Help us as we think about what we've heard today, O Lord, to process it. And help us, O Lord, to live in the light of the unveiling of who you are and what you're doing. For we ask it in Christ's name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.